We're going to be talking about families today, so I thought I'd share a story from one of my own awkward family reunions uh, growing up. Uh, My dad's family, for years and years, uh, every Thanksgiving would meet at the church that he grew up in, in Chanute, Kansas. And uh, it it was his his dad and all of his dad's siblings, so there are like 150 of us in, in the heyday, right? They'd all get together, have this enormous, ridiculous Thanksgiving feast for lunch, and then sometime around 2 o'clock, uh, the uncles and the cousins and basically anyone who wanted to would make their way out to the big field by the church and play football, uh, some kind of tag or touch, or usually resolved into tackle football by the end of the day, right? And then we would all sort of stagger back inside and, and eat ourselves silly again, and that was Thanksgiving for years. Uh, by the time I was in college, I was uh, sort of starting to realize that my, my baby brother, who had always been kind of the, uh, you know, the, the kid little brother that was always, I, you know, he'd always like to pick on and stuff, uh, was not so little anymore. He was a three-sport athlete in high school. I was a zero-sport athlete in high school. And, and so uh, he was getting to the point where he could really show me a thing or two on the football field. And so in this one particular football game, this one year, uh, he, I managed to stop him. I was so proud of myself. I was proud enough that I peacocked possibly a little bit too much, right? There are no witnesses left to tell the story, so we'll never know the truth. Um, but it, it's possible that I was a little bit too proud of myself. And then, uh, on, so on the next play, my dad decided that he was going to teach me a lesson because he thought I had peacocked too much. And so I was on offense, I had the ball, and I managed to get past my dad and score a touchdown, and then I definitely peacocked too much. And it was, it was such an interesting moment. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been in these moments where the game quit being fun because two people had let their egos get in the way, right? And that was me and my dad in that moment. Uh, both of us had quit enjoying a nice time with our family, and all of a sudden it had become about us proving something probably mostly to ourselves, right? And so I remember that the game didn't last very long after that because, of course, no one said anything about how, how awkward it had gotten. But everyone could, you could just feel that it was not fun anymore. And so uh, much more quickly than usual, the game sort of dissolved and everyone went back inside and I enjoyed a nice, awkward Thanksgiving dinner. Now, I wanted to tell that story this morning because uh, that was one of the first times I realized that the men in my family have a particular character trait, call it pride or call it stubbornness, call it arrogance, call it something, but it's something that I recognize in myself, it's something I recognize in my dad, it's something that I recognize in his dad, something that that I recognize in my brother and that actually he and I have had several long conversations about how it has affected us in our marriages and our lives, and uh, it's something that I realize that has been passed down in the men of our family. It's like a, it's like a, a, something that we have inherited, a character trait that's really pretty toxic. Uh, It can ruin family Thanksgivings, it can cause uh, fights in marriages, it can cause all kinds of problems. And I share all of that because that's the kind of thing I want to talk about with you this morning. This idea that we all inherit from our families uh, what we're going to call today generational sins. That there are particular sins, particular toxic beliefs and behaviors and ideas that get passed down from family to family uh, through generations. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to identify those things in our lives and in our families, what it looks like to try to begin to overcome those things in our lives and our families and find hope and healing because sin is not the only thing that we can pass down as a legacy. We can also pass down righteousness and faithfulness and hope and joy. And so we're going to talk about how to identify and get away from and find healing from the sinful things that we've inherited from our families and how we can begin to leave a legacy of life and hope. So it's going to be a fun morning, uh, but it's going to require us to do a little bit of introspection. So we're going to begin this morning by singing and celebrating to the God who brings us all together and invites us all to be family together. So would you stand and sing as we begin this morning?
Okay, we are in a series right now called Empathy for the Devil, and we are meeting uh, six of the Bible's very worst villains, some of the most infamous people in history, and we're asking, why did they do the things that they did? Well, can we understand a little bit of what led them to make the choices that they made? And, and what we're not trying to do is apologize or condone anything they've done. We're trying to understand, right, to practice some empathy, to put ourselves in their shoes and ask how they walked the path that they walked to get to where they got to. Because when we've done that so far, we've seen that uh, we actually see a lot more of ourselves reflected in them than maybe we ever thought was possible, certainly more than is comfortable. But when we see ourselves in them, it allows us to identify sin in our own lives and be able to turn from that and turn to God for life. So this morning, uh, I'm guessing that our villain this morning is probably the least familiar to most of us. Her name is Herodias, and she is the New Testament's signature evil queen. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me over to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, if you grab one of the free Bibles out of the back, you can find that on page 603. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that one. Consider it a gift from us. We'd be honored. Uh, As you're turning to Mark 6... Let me give you a little bit of background on Herodias, and I'm going to warn you, it gets real crazy real quick, so just hang with me, and if you get confused, I don't blame you, you're supposed to be confused, and we'll come back up for air, and it will all more or less make sense by the time we get to the end of it, okay? But what you need to know about Her- Herodias' story is that uh, her family tree makes Game of Thrones look really tame, all right, and everyone is named Herod, okay, and I apologize for that but everyone is named Herod, and so we're going to do our best to sort through it. So Herodias is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king when Jesus was born. He's the king that tried to kill Jesus when he was an infant and ordered the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem. That's the, you know, the part of the Christmas story we always skip over, right? That's her grandfather. She was part, Herod, uh, Herod the Great was the king of Israel, and Herodias was his granddaughter. Now, Herodias was married, probably when she was around 12 years old, to one of Herod the Great's sons, which, yes, that's her uncle, okay? And his name was Herod II. And at the time they were married, Herod II was Herod's heir. So Herodias was the crown princess of Israel, right? As soon as Herod the Great died, she and her husband were going to be the king and queen of the nation of Israel. However, then... Herod II's mother, who was Herod the Great's second or third wife, I misremember, right? She tried to kill Herod, Herod the Great, the first king, right? In a plot that involved one of Herod the Great's other sons. Okay, now Herod the Great found out about it. The coup failed. They failed to kill him. And he had all of the people involved executed. And sort of to, I guess, just stick it to Uh, the woman who tried to kill him one more time, because her son was the crown prince, he disinherited Herod II. So now Herodias' husband was no longer the heir to the throne of Israel. Now he was just like, you know, just some guy living living in Rome, and she was married to him. So she divorced Herod II and married a different uncle named Herod Antipas. Okay? Now, we're just going to call him Antipas because it's already way too confusing, Right? Now, who was Herod Antipas? Well, he was, Herod the Great had a ton of sons, and he was one of three sons that once Herod the Great started changing his will, he was one of three sons that was named an heir in one of the wills. But Herod the Great was super paranoid, and not just paranoid, people were actually trying to kill him all the time, mostly people in his own family, so he kept writing new wills. And so when he actually died, there were like three different sons that all had a will that said that they were supposed to be the next king of Israel. You can imagine how that went, 
right? So all three of these sons took the will that had their name on it, and they went to Rome to argue in front of Caesar Augustus that they should be named the rightful heir uh, of Israel and be, be called the king of Israel. And they all had their will from Herod to do it. And so uh, Augustus, I think kind of because he was sick of them fighting, decided that he was going to name all of them kings. So he divided Israel into quarters, and he gave one son the bottom half, and then he divided the other two halves between the other two sons. And he, he said, you're not allowed to call yourself kings, you're called tetrarchs, which is a Roman way of saying, like, a quarter king, right? Which is kind of funny, right? Like, uh, you wanted to be king? Well, you're a quarter king. So Herod Antipas was one of the tetrarchs, one of the quarter kings. And he originally married a princess from a neighboring uh, country, to, which that was done a lot in those days, right? Political marriages were done to kind of solidify alliances and that kind of stuff. So, so he married a country that they had long been at war with, created a peace there. But then when he found out that Herodias was in the market for a new husband, who was at least a quarter of a king, if not a full-fledged king, he divorced, his, he divorced that woman, and then Herodias and Herod Antipas married each other, Okay. So they both divorced their previous royal spouses to marry each other, and they ruled over the Galilee region of Israel, which is where Jesus, that's where Nazareth is, where Jesus grew up, and that's where John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, who was the prophet, was working. So, so Jesus and John uh, were basically under Herod, and Herod, Herod Antipas and Herodias uh, when they were doing their ministry, and that, that's, that matters for what we're actually going to read when we get to the scripture. Okay, now... John the Baptist, which people called him the Baptist, not because he was like started the Baptist church, but because he was the one that baptized people. And so John is very, a very common name today. It was a very common name back then. And so when people are like, which John are you talking about? They'd be like, John, the one that baptizes people, right? So the John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Um, he was a prophet of God sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus, right? He was cousins with Jesus. And his job was to announce that, hey, the Messiah has come and everyone, it's time to turn from your sin, repent and follow the way of God. He particularly took to task Herodias and Antipas because they had divorced from their royal, husband, uh, their royal spouses to marry each other. And he said, this is an abomination. There was no biblical grounds for this. And you're living in sin and you're against God and God's judgment is going to come on you. So that was not particularly well received at the royal palace, the quarter royal palace, I guess. Right? As you can imagine, Herodias actually hated John the Baptist, hated him. Because he went around telling everyone that her marriage was a fraud and an abomination to God and all this kind of stuff. And so she tried to get Antipas, her husband, to have him killed, but Antipas was pretty religious. And he was like, look, I don't, I don't know if John is a prophet of God or not, but just in case, we probably better not kill him. Right? So finally, she finally convinced, if you're not going to kill him, at least put him in prison. Right? So they did. They arrested John. They had him locked in their dungeons. And that's where the story picks up. Okay? So we're going to read beginning in verse 21 of John chapter six, or Mark chapter 6. Herodias' chance, chance to kill John the Baptist finally came on Herod's birthday. Now this is Herod Antipas. Right? He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, a lot of people call her Salome, because again, we don't need one more Herod in this story, right? Okay. So also named Herodias came in, and, she perform and this is actually Antipas' stepdaughter. It's Herodias' daughter with Herod II. More background. Uh, so the daughter came in, and she performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod Antipas and his guests. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you asked for up to half of my kingdom. This is a great deal, right? So she went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? And her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. 
So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Then the king deeply regretted what he had said, but because of the vow he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. He couldn't go back on a public promise he had made in the middle of the party. So immediately he sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl, who took it to her mother. And when John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. So, Herodias. Again, I said earlier, she's the New Testament's prototypical evil queen. This is why, right? She kills John's prophet, or God's prophet, John. She's clearly the villain of the story, right? Um, but it's enough for Mark that she's just an evil queen type, right? Like, every story's better when it has an evil queen in it, so why not Herodias? But obviously, just from that very weird and uh, surface-level dive we took into Herodias's family tree, there's more going on here, right? This convoluted plan that she comes up with to trap the baptizer and to behead him, uh, she learned how to manipulate like that from her family. She grew up in a family uh, of a master manipulator. Herod the Great was a master at manipulating people to get his way, and from the time she was a child, she was shuffled around as a pawn for other people. Family was never a safe place for Herodias to be. It was actually probably the least safe place. If you'd had her make a list of people she trusted the least, her family probably would have been at the top of that list, right? For good reason. And so we're not terribly surprised that when someone threatened her, she responded in this kind of complex, convoluted, manipulative way of getting what she wanted because that's what she had learned from her family. Now that doesn't excuse what she did, of course, but it does help us to see that we all, I think all of us, we learn how to engage in conflict, how to fight, right? We, we all learn that from our families. You know, every premarital or marriage counseling I do, we talk about, well, tell me how your parents fought. Tell me how your family engaged in conflict, right? And every single time, that's pretty much the way that the person does too, right? We learn what good conflict resolution is or what good fighting is from our families, even if it's not particularly good. Right? Even if it's not actually very effective or very healthy, or, uh, we still learn it from our families. And it seems normal to us. Right? We can't imagine handling conflict any other way. If you grew up in a family that just avoided conflict, you can't imagine any other way than just avoiding. It just seems weird to you. It seems wrong. If you were in a family like mine that blew up, right, you can't imagine not, what do you mean not talking about it? We have to talk about it. That's how you do. You yell at each other until one of you gives up. That's that's good, healthy conflict resolution. Obviously, it's not healthy, but it seems normal. It seems like the way you do it, right? We all learn how to manage conflict from our families. And Herodias is no different from that. We all inherit these kinds of patterns and behaviors and beliefs and thoughts from our families. We all learn how to see the world, how to see other people, how to see ourselves. We all learn these things from our families for good and for bad. And so I want to talk about the bad first before we move into talking about the good because I think Herodias' story is a perfect example of what happens when it goes bad, right? And the, the Bible has a term for this. Uh, in Scripture, we call it generational sin, sin that's passed on from generation to generation, like an inheritance, like a legacy, right? So back in the Ten Commandments, when God is warning the Israelites about idolatry, he makes this statement, which frankly is relatively terrifying. Right? In Exodus 25, God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. 
it's pretty scary. Of course it's scary for when we sin, like when we realize that like the things that we do will be passed on to our children to the third and the fourth generation, like that's scary enough. But then when we consider the fact that that means that we have inherited sin, not just from our parents, but from our grandparents, even from our great-grandparents, that's when I think it starts to feel pretty terrifying. Uh, I grew up I grew up a child of divorce. My parents had one of those pretty nasty, messy divorces that we kids were caught in the middle of. And I remember the first time like I read this as a teenager. And I thought, well, wait a second, that's not fair. I mean, why why should what they did affect me? Why should I have to pay for their sins? That's that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem good. Doesn't seem just. And I got mad. Like, I got mad thinking about what the consequences were going to be in my life played out about that because of what my parents had chosen to do. But, of course, pretty quickly, if you were here and we talked about Cain, you know this, right? Under that anger was fear. Fear because I could already see some of the same habits in my parents that had led to their blow-up in me, even as a teenager. And so I wondered if, if this is just my fate, if I am just, you know, uh, consigned to repeat the mistakes of the past and trapped in this cycle of sinfulness that was going to be just passed on to the third and the fourth generation. And that's hard. That's scary. It's painful. And I wanted to kick back. I wanted to say, I did. I mean, I, I, said, I said, that's not, it's just not right. It's just not fair that I should have to bear that burden. And, and I'm not the only one who felt that way. I'm sure some of you are feeling that way, thinking about some of the own stu- stuff in your own families, right? But the Israelites felt that way too. In fact, after the exile, which is when the Babylonian Empire came in and completely destroyed God's people, uh, the children of the exile felt the same way. They understood that God had said for generations, look, if you're not faithful to me, bad things are going to happen. And they kept not being faithful, and those bad things were going to happen. They were like, we get it. We get why our parents had to pay for their sins. But they had, this, they had this saying, they said, uh, the parents eat the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, right? So it's like when you bite into a lemon and you're like, ooh, you make that face? Like, he's like, yeah, the, the parents bit the lemon and we're the ones going, it's not fair. It's not fair that we are suffering under the consequences of what our parents did. It's not fair. They had that same reaction that we do. And here's what God said to them through the prophet Ezekiel. When they said it's not fair, when they insisted, there should be something better than this. What, you ask, doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? And God says, no. For if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, then that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. And the child will not be punished for the parent's sins. And the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior. And wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But if a wicked people turn away from all their sin and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. All their past sins will be forgotten, and they will live because of the righteous things that they have done. So Ezekiel comes in and says, no, 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 it's not like that, right? It's not like the parents have to pay for the sins of the children, or the children have to pay for the sins of the parents. Everyone's held accountable for the things that they do. And everyone relaxes and says, oh, thank goodness. And we just try to forget what it said in Exodus, right? And just just cling, cling to Ezekiel and say, okay, I'm responsible for my own business, and that's it, right? But, but So which is it? I mean, we know we want it to be, right? We know we want it to just be the I'm responsible for my own mess and that's it. But we can't get away from the fact that Exodus has said the sins of the parents will be visited onto the children to the third and the fourth generations. And we, we frankly, that feels, that feels more true 
when we look at our own families and we see the patterns and the cycles of, of sin that have been passed down. So, so how do we balance these two things? Well, I, I think we have to acknowledge that they are both true. Yes, we are only held accountable for our own sins. We're not going to be punished or held accountable for the sins of other people. But at the same time, we inherit patterns of behavior, patterns of thinking, patterns of seeing ourselves and the world and each other and God. We inherit those things from our parents. We do. We can't get away from them. Our families always form us, inevitably, no matter what kind of family you have. The best family forms us, the worst family forms us. And the best family gives us patterns of sin, no matter how good they are, and the worst families obviously give us patterns of sin, no matter how bad they are. We cannot escape the legacies that our families pass on to us. So what are we supposed to do? I mean, are we just doomed to be trapped in these patterns of generational sin? And fortunately for us, the answer is no, we're not. Because God has offered us a new family, a spiritual family to be a part of. In uh, Matthew chapter th- or Mark chapter 3, just a little bit before uh, the story of Herodias, uh, Jesus has begun teaching. He's become pretty well known. Word is starting to get around that he's kind of a little bit outside the box, maybe even a little crazy. And his family actually comes to take him back home and lock him in the basement until he can start being more well-behaved, right? And so he's teaching in a house, and here's what happens. Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside the house where he's teaching, and they sent word for him to come out and talk with them, right? So they can kind of take him back home and kind of get him back in line. There's a crowd sitting around, and and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replies, well, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he looked around at those sitting around him, and he said, look, these are my mothers and my brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus says that there's this spiritual family that's being created in the midst of my teachings, and, and, and this, is, this is the family that I belong to. And if that, if that sounds a little bit radical to you, that Jesus would sort of like disown his biological family and embrace this spiritual family, I assure you it was much more radical and offensive in the first century when family was everything. And yet Jesus says this. He says, this family is, this spiritual family, this is my family. Now, when I say that the church is our spiritual family, this is what I'm talking about. That, that Jesus actually binds us together as a spiritual family. And that we can begin to learn through relationships in our spiritual family all of the negative things that we've inherited from our biological families. It's hard to see it when you're just a part of one family, right? Because again, whatever, no, whatever normal is, no matter how toxic or sinful it is, it still is normal. And, it's still, and so it's, it's hard to get up out of that and look down and see it until you're in a relationship with someone else. Again, this is why marriages can be so fruitful because it's two different families coming together and learning how to see, kind of see each other's crazy, right? And in, in the worst case scenarios, that blows things up. But in the best case scenario, we actually find healing and hope in one another because we begin to learn how to see the ways that I was formed in patterns of sin. And they begin to see the ways that they were formed in the patterns of sin. And my normal and their normal kind of clash into each other, and we have to figure out something better. And the same thing happens in the church. That's why when church becomes real community, real intimate, when you begin to have real significant relationships with other people, when it gets, you get intimate enough with other people that you actually start disagreeing about stuff, you actually begin to learn how to uh, have conflict better. You begin to learn how to see things more clearly. You begin to see those, those patterns in your own life. You begin to realize, oh, I guess that's not the only way that people do things. 
right? Because you see it in other people who are outside of your biological family. That's why, that's why Jesus calls us into a spiritual family so that we, begin, we can begin to see those patterns and those pains that we have inherited by seeing something else reflected in other people. And the reason we need to do that, friends, is because sin is not the only thing that can be a legacy. I'm going to show you the rest of that commandment in Exodus chapter 20. So Jesus said again, don't bow down to them, for I'm, your, I'm a jealous God. I will visit the sins of the parents upon the children to the third and the fourth generations. But, in verse 6, I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. See, our families can offer to us legacies of life, too. Our families are not only sources of sin and pain and suffering, but our families can actually pass on life and hope and beauty and truth, not just to three or four generations, but for a thousand generations. You go back far enough on my family tree on my mom's side, and you find a guy named Michael Mix, who is the man who brought the Moravian Brotherhood Church to North America. He came over in the 1700s and uh, came through Canada and planted churches over here so that people could hear about Jesus. On my dad's side, you go back, not too far, actually, you meet my great-grandpa, Paul Life, who is a United Methodist pastor, who took all these little small churches. They'd send him these little small churches where uh, oftentimes some traumatic, painful things had happened in the church's history. And, and he just loved them and cared for them and, and pastored them and made them feel welcomed and loved and encouraged and accepted. On both sides of my family, you'll find people who are, uh, have a special attention and care for outsiders, for the downtrodden, for the overlooked, going all, as far back as I can trace. And so it's no surprise to me that I ended up in a congregation of people that that's our DNA, caring for those who are less fortunate, making people feel welcomed who have felt excluded everywhere else, because that's a legacy that my family has passed down to me for generations. And so when I first came to Catalyst, I was like, yeah, this is where I fit. Like, these are my people. Because the legacy that my biological family had given to me, this legacy of life and hope and hospitality, was one that resonated with the legacy of this spiritual family that I was called to be a part of. So when we, when we join a spiritual family and we begin to overcome those things in our past, those, those uh, painful, sinful things that we've inherited, we begin to see more clearly the legacies of life that we've been given. And we, be, we, we can, with our spiritual families, become a light even to our biological families. Some of the best and most healing conversations I've ever had have been with my biological family as we've talked about these things that we've seen in us, these patterns that we've been able to see, and we can talk about kind of where that comes from and how that gets encouraged, and most importantly, how we can overcome those things. It's a beautiful, sacred thing to be able to do with people that, you know, you're stuck with for the rest of your life, whether you want to or not, right? That's the beauty of, of our biological families. Our spiritual families can make us into a people who are hope and life, even for them, especially for them and for the whole world. So friends, I want to invite you to the communion table this morning. We're going to spend some more time talking about our families, thinking about our families. But before we go too much further, I want to invite you here because this table is where Jesus makes us his family. Where Jesus invites us to receive of his own body and blood that we might be brought into the church, that we might call each other brothers and sisters, that we might begin to find healing and hope from the legacies of sin that we have inherited. This table invites us to, to the meal that Jesus shared with his followers the night before he was killed. When he broke bread and said, take it and eat it, this is my body. It's broken for you. 
It's at this meal that he passed a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood. It's poured out as a new covenant for, for the forgiveness of sin. Take it and drink it. Friends, approaching this table, we bring with us all of the good and the bad that we have inherited from our families. All of the good and bad that we have introduced into the world, ourselves. And we are swept up into Jesus' family. And we find forgiveness and life and hope and restoration. And he sends us into the world as one body, one family, brothers and sisters, who are to be a light to everyone that we encounter, particularly in our homes, among our biological families. This table is not about uh, the guilt and the shame of what has brought us here. It's about the hope and the life and the legacy that we can leave for those who are coming after us. And so uh, I'm going invite to you, invite you in a few moments to approach the table with me. I'm going to lead you first in a prayer of examine, where I ask you three questions to help you reflect on uh, what legacy you have been left and what legacy you are leaving. Then I'm going to pray for us all together. And then as you're ready, you're welcome to come forward and receive communion. So here's the first question I want you to consider. What is the legacy of life that I have inherited from my family? What is something that's good and beautiful and holy? What is a legacy of sin that I have inherited from my family? Finally, what relationships can I nurture this week that will encourage me to leave a legacy of life? Maybe that's in your C group. Maybe that's a friendship. Maybe that's a conversation that you need to have inside of your biological family. What relationships can I nurture this week that will encourage me to leave a legacy of life? pray together. God, this morning you have invited us to consider our families and the good and the bad that we have inherited from them. Uh, we confess this is a difficult thing to do. It's, it's difficult to uh, be honest about the things that we have inherited uh, from our families. It's difficult to look at the, the things that are so deep in us that we thought they were normal. And yet you have called us to be a part of your family, the church. 
you have called us brothers and sisters that we might find life, that we might see those deep, deep sins that we did not realize were sins because they were so deeply embedded in us. And you have invited us to confess those things, to turn from them, that we might have life, that we might have life not only for ourselves, that w- but that we might leave legacies of life that echo down a thousand generations. And so we approach your table this morning as a people who needs your help a people who needs to be wrapped up into the body of your church, a people who needs to be shown the ways in which our families have given us inheritances of sin. We ask that these wafers and juice become a spiritual food for us, that they open our eyes and help us to hear the voice of your spirit speaking to us and healing us and calling us to life. We ask that as we leave the table, you send us back into the world as agents of your love and your life, that, that all who know us might know uh, what it means to be a part of your family, and that both our spiritual and our biological families would leave legacies of life that echo uh, for thousands of years. We offer these prayers and we approach your table this morning. In the name of your son, Jesus. Uh, Next week we're doing Jezebel. Uh, She's a super fun villain, so you're going to be excited for that, I know. Um, But for this week, as you're leaving... I just want to challenge you again. I, I am confident that no one in here has a family that is as messed up as Herodias's. Um, so, so I know then that this is good news for you, um, that, you uh, that you can find the freedom from the sins that you have inherited, and you can, you can live into the legacies of life that your family has given you, and you can create legacies of life for the people who are coming after you. So as you go this morning, Catalyst, Would you go as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in God's kingdom, and go leaving legacies of life that will echo for a thousand generations that come after you? Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.